we kick off the book of Ephesians tonight. I'm excited. We're going to be spending somewhere between 12 and 18 weeks in this six-chapter book. And the title, the theme, the primary theme of this book is finding our identity in Christ. And so we ask ourselves the question, who am I? How would you fill out, fill in this blank? Because your answer to that dictates everything. If you don't know who you are, you won't know what to do in life. And so, what would you put in the blank? I am rich. I am poor. I'm young. I'm old. I'm smart. I'm stupid. I'm successful. I'm a failure. I'm loved. I'm hated. I'm worthy. I'm unworthy. I'm good. I'm bad. What would you say? It changes everything. You see, the search for identity um, is one that all of us go through, whether we know it or not. And it starts when you're a kid. Uh, When you're a kid, you don't necessarily care about your identity, but you start to realize people have identities. Did you have any nicknames growing up? Any Anything that you were known for? Did you, um, were you the kid that made people laugh? Uh, were you the funny guy? Or were you the sad, lonely kid? What were you as a kid? Now, when you become a teenager, it changes. All of a sudden, you do care more about what your identity is. And you have to decide, um, who am I? And for the first time in life, maybe you realize, hey, I, I, I am going to do some things that are going to dictate who I am. And so you say, well, I'm going to be the jock or I'm going to be the cheerleader. I'm going to be the nerdy person. I'm going to be um, the, the isolated person. I'm going to be the smart guy. I'm going to be the, and you fill in the blank. Well, then you get to college, and all of a sudden you say, you know what, I'm going to reinvent myself because I don't like who I was in high school. I don't want to be the nerdy person anymore. I don't want to be just the jock. I'm more than just the jock. And so then you, you start to figure out, well, this is what I believe, and I was under my parents' reign um, and, and rule before, but now I'm going to figure out where do I want to work? What do I want to do? Do I want to go to school? Do I want to not just go to school? Do I want to do I wanna just do nothing? Do I want to believe in this? Do I want to practice that? What's my philosophy here? And so your search for identity is combined with your search for purpose. You want to know who am I and what am I doing here? But then after college, all of a sudden, then you have an identity crisis, don't you? Because now you're an adult and you got to pay bills and you got to do some things and you can't just search Forever, and you think, "Wow, I got to know what am I? What am I going to do with my life?" I had until graduation day to determine what I was going to do, and now you are scared because you don't necessarily know who you are. And so, there's two primary things that shape your identity from here: your relationship status, at least in America, and your job status. If you have a relationship status that is single, you say, okay, I'm going to be the single person, or no, I'm going to be the one who dates people, or I'm going to have the long-term relationship, I'm going to be married, or on the flip side, you say, well, is my job good? Is it bad? Am I successful? Am I a failure in my parents' eyes? Did I go down the path that they thought I should go down? And so those statuses determine your identity. All of a sudden, for many of us, we find ourselves married. Your identity changes again. You say, okay, now it's not me, it's we. 
And that's not just about what I want. It's about what we want and who we are. And all of a sudden, now you don't get so much of a choice anymore. Now it's narrowed down. You're, You're in a relationship that you can't get out of this thing. And so now you hope you like who you're becoming together and you have to grow together. And your identity is much bigger than you. Then for lots of people, they have kids. Kids come in, they shape your identity. Some of us, we not only have our identity shaped from there on, but we get our previous identity erased. There's some who, who go from, well, I, I went to college and I'm working full time or, um, and everything was good. I was going to be a businesswoman. Now I'm a stay-at-home mom and I don't know what that looks like. I didn't know I'd ever be this. I didn't ever want this, but now I want it and here I am. What does it mean? And it changes your identity then you become an empty nester. And you say, where are they? (laughs) Where did they go? And who are you? And who am I? Do I like you? Do I like me? We've been roommates for 20 years. Are we still married? And this is unfortunately why a lot of divorce comes in the empty nest stage because you say, I married you 20, 30 years ago, but I haven't known you very well in 20 or 30 years. And so people have a self-discovery process of who are we? Let's recreate life. And our identity changes again. And then you get older, and one day you hope you look back at your life and say, yeah, I figured it out. I knew who I was. I knew what I stood for. I know who I am. But there's no guarantee. (laughs) Life experience in and of itself doesn't guarantee you'll ever figure out who you are. And if you go with the flow of what the world tells you, then you'll probably just go crazy in the process, and you won't land on truth. And so you have to know who God is and what God has done so that you know who you are and what you're going to do now. It changes everything. So before we jump into the book of Ephesians, we're just going to cover um, two verses tonight. We've got some groundwork to do. Um, this is going to be heavy on uh, some context and who wrote the book and all that good stuff. But even before we do that, as we talk about identity in this series, I want to go way back to Genesis. And I just want to look at a couple verses, but I think it's crucial um, before we even get started in Ephesians, because if we're going to know who we are, we've got to know who God literally created us to be. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So our being the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So this is called the cultural mandate that we're going to take care of the earth. You might not care about recycling. You might not care about what's happening in the farming world. God's saying, you you should (laughs) because I gave you some authority over this. Now, there's a few truths we need to talk about. The first one, when it comes to our identity, how God created us originally. This is before sin entered the world. This was how it was supposed to be. And ultimately, what you're going to see in Ephesians is us going back to the way that it should be. Now, the first thing is we're created in God's image. He said, let us make man in our image. So in the image of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we're not talking just uh, physically, right? Because it says God the Father is spirit. But we're talking about mirroring God. Now in Colossians 1, it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We are made in 
the image. We're not the image. We are made in the image. So we're not God. We are a mirror. We are a reflection. We, are, have, we have attributes that God has. We are relational because God is relational. We have intellect because God has intellect. We can make decisions because that's an attribute God has. We have creativity because God is creator. We have uh, emotional capacity. And you see all throughout the scriptures that God, he, he's angry and he, he loves and he has emotions and we have all these attributes because we're made in the image of God. So we're not God, but there's elements of us that look like him. Now, n- number two, we're made above animals. I know this sounds simple, but we live in a day and age where um, if you go to the public school system, they're going to tell you we're basically lucky monkeys. Uh, where we, We're the ones who grew up and we grew out of that stage in evolution and, and now... Um, we're basically, um, we're basically just lucky monkeys. And so, God says right off the bat, you need to know um, I'm putting you in charge of the animals. You're different than the animals. You're above the animals, and this is a very important distinction. So, um, don't miss it. Skipping over to verse 28, it says, "And God blessed them." And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The third thing we see is that we were blessed to bless. So the very nature of being created in the image of God, the way it was supposed to be, is that we are not good by ourselves. Um, Not that it's impossible to be by yourself, but but if you just removed yourself from all of humanity... um, it usually doesn't go well for you. We were meant to um, be given by God certain things, not just attributes, but grace. We are, we are, we are humans who have um, the ability to do good things with our lives and in this world to make it better. And there's an expectation that God has blessed you to bless others. He's the blesser, and we receive blessings so that we can give to others. This is important for the church. This is important for humans because no one will ever find out who they truly are or what they're meant to do on earth if it is completely self-centered. It's not about us. It's about God. And so he blessed them and said, be fruitful, go multiply. Go do something. Go take what I've given you and multiply it. Progress. Do something good. It brings me glory. Now, before we jump out of Genesis and back into Ephesians, there's a couple key points that I just, I just want to throw out there from Genesis 1. If you read all of Genesis 1, you'll see a couple key points. Let me throw them out there. Number one, value isn't questioned. So it says in, in verse 27, uh, we didn't look at that verse, but, but it says that man and woman were created. And, of course, we know, if you continue to read, that woman was taken from man. And we have equality issues in our culture, but there is not equality issues in Genesis chapter 1. So you don't have to ever wonder. This is really, really, really good news. You, you don't have to wonder. If I screw up enough, will I be somehow less valuable than the people around me? And God's saying, there's nothing that you can do, man, woman, race, ethnicity, whatever you are, there's nothing you can do to ever be better than another human being or worse than another human being. Human beings all have the same value. And they, Adam and Eve, did not question their value, did not question themselves until 
Genesis chapter 3, and it goes on. And the second key point here is that their identity, humanity's identity, is achieved, or excuse me, it's received, not achieved. That would really spin this out of control if it was achieved. It wouldn't, the rest of the sermon wouldn't make sense, I promise. I promise. It was received. Notice, what did Adam and Eve do to receive the blessing, to receive their identity? They didn't do anything. It's about God. God is God, and he tells us who we are. And it's not dependent on whether you can live up to it or, or that you've cleaned yourself up enough to be worthy of his identity that he gives you or, or that you can somehow have a perfect track record after you accept his identity, the one he's given you. They didn't do anything to achieve it. They simply received it. So that brings us to the text tonight. Just two verses. It's the greeting of this letter. And again, we're going to do some groundwork, but we're going to hit these two verses because they're packed full of good stuff. And so in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the theme is, I am who God says I am. So you've got to make a decision right off the bat, and here's the big idea for tonight. Am I going to choose to believe that the one who created me gets to define me? Your friends, your parents, yourself, the enemy, everyone wants to define one another. We don't have the credibility or the authority to do it. Only God does. If God is God and we are not, and he's more powerful, he's more authoritative, he has all the rights and we don't. That's really, really good news. And it can save you from a lot of heartbreak. Because depending on what you think about yourself or what you feel about yourself or who your friends are or who your parents are, you're probably going to be given some identities in life that aren't very pleasant. And then when you live up to those unpleasant identities, it's going to make you feel even worse. You're going to spiral out of control, but you have to pull away and say, you know what? It's not about my behavior. It's not about what I've done. I'm not just the sum of my past mistakes. It's about who God is and what he has done. So we're going to jump into that. First two verses. In Ecclesiastes, we, uh, we're in the New Living Translation, NLT. We are back to the ESV, if anyone's wondering. Verse 1 says, Paul, or I, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, let's pick it apart. We're going to stop three times in these short two verses. The first one is the first half of verse 1. We call it ver- or 1A. That's half of a verse. You call it A. If it's the second half of a verse, we call it B. I, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So let's dive into the first thing. Who is he? Who is Paul? Let's, let's dig in to the context of this letter. So the book of Ephesians, big picture, 30,000 foot view, the role that it has in the Bible. When people think of the book of Ephesians, they think of God's church, how God identifies his church, who he says we are. Identity is a big deal, but even bigger than that. Ultimately, God is taking everything that went wrong in Genesis chapter 3, 
right? Because we just covered Genesis 1 a little bit. And the problem is that the enemy, the devil, comes in and, and lies to Eve and tricks her and tears her identity down. Did God really say that? Is God really who he says he is? Should you do that? And it's just a mess after that. And the rest of the Bible is about God telling us who he is, what he's done for us in our place, and who we are in light of that. And so now Ephesians really hones in on the idea that God is reconciling all of humanity to himself. One day there will be, if you read, um, spoiler alert, the end of Revelation, if you read, you're going to see all of humanity uh, will ultimately be reconciled to him, whether they choose to or not. Every knee shall bow, and there will be a new heaven, a new earth, everything right now. Even it talks about the, the, the earth is groaning out. It's groaning out. Every time you see earthquakes and hurricanes, we know this is the earth. The world is groaning out saying, we are broken. We need to be fixed. We need to be redeemed. You look through our city, the brokenness. You look on the news, the, the brokenness. Everything's screaming out. We're broken. Please fix us. And in Ephesians, God is saying, the church has a special role because you're a first fruit. You are now, after the risen Christ who is resurrected, and he's the firstborn, right? Um, Now, everyone who's in him, the church, everyone who places their faith in Jesus, is part of this, this, this big picture that ultimately everything's coming back under God's reign, his rule. The enemy has some reign on earth. He's called the prince of earth right now, but he lost his main tool in death because Jesus conquered the grave. But ultimately, he won't have reign. He's going to be thrown into hell, and we are going to be under God's rule, and it's going to be awesome. And so that's the big picture, that God is reconciling all things to himself, and we get to be a part of that as the church. We get to model that for the world. Now, digging into some other stuff, this might be boring for some of you, but this is good, because here's, here's the good news. So the Old Testament although it spans from the beginning of time all the way up to the time of Christ, or roughly 400 years um, before Jesus came to earth, everything that you, for the most part, after you get past Genesis, you're looking at um, the whole of the Old Testament being written, not the events in it, but being written from 1500 B.C. to roughly 400 B.C., so an 1100-year period. There's a lot going on in a lot of different cultures to understand fully what's going on in the Old Testament. But the New Testament, a little more hope for those of you who don't want to go to Bible college, in understanding and being able to piece some things together. Because all 27 books, for the most part, um, we understand them to be written from roughly A.D. 50 to A.D. 90. So a 40-year period in the same Roman Empire, and the events that took place are all within that 100-year period, right? From the birth of Christ to ultimately the book of Revelation being written and John and the island of Patmos and all that good stuff. So once you learn about the context of one of these books in the New Testament, it gives you a great foundation for what's happening in all of the New Testament. And you'll be able to piece things together. You say, okay, that date makes more sense now because this happened there. And, oh, that was happening in Ephesus. And, And you'll surprise yourself at how quickly you can piece things together and you'll say, this makes way more sense. So I have to tell you that before we get into some of the boring stuff. A.D. 62 is when this was written. The literary genre 
is an epistle. It was a circular letter written to the church in Ephesus, but it was often passed around. It's not like an email or something, right? Um, it was passed around for churches to, to read. And some believe, some scholars believe there's actually two letters because some of the early manuscripts don't have to the Ephesians written in it, but most do. And so um, we understand it to be just a letter. You'll see that in the, in the, the greeting um, to begin with here in the first two verses. But probably written around AD 62, Paul was in um, prison or house arrest. If you look in Acts chapter 28, when he wrote this, um, you'll see he wrote um, what we believe to be Colossians and um, Philippians and Philemon and Ephesians. We call them the prison letters while he was in jail. So when you read those four and you're like, the dude was in jail, he was, it was a form of house arrest. It changes the way you understand those letters. Now, the purpose and the themes. Purpose was ultimately to encourage the church regarding three things. First one is union with Christ. This is the big idea. This is why we call um, this whole series Finding Our Identity in Christ, because almost 40 times in these six chapters, you will hear the words in Christ or in him or in the beloved Meaning, this is all about our position in Christ. If you have faith in Jesus, this is your position. You might not feel it, you might not like it, you might not understand it, but God is saying this is who you are as a Christian, and it's really, really good news. That's the primary theme. Also, a couple others. Number two, the word mystery, you're going to see that about seven times in these six chapters. And it's talking about, again, the mystery of the gospel, and part of it is reconciling all things to himself, like we just talked about. And then, last but not least, the word walk, you'll see that over and over and over again. What does it look like in Christian living, as some would say? Um, what does it look like to live out the gospel? So, those are some of the f- main themes. You'll see the structure is very clear. This is one of the easier ones to understand in the book of Ephesians um, or in the New Testament. You'll see these six chapters split right in half. The first three chapters are really heavy on theology. The last three chapters are really heavy on application. So, Here's what the gospel is for three chapters. Here's how the gospel changes the way you live the last three chapters. Make sense? Recipient. Again, circular letter to the church in Ephesus. Now, um, here's, here's kind of a, a broad picture. Ephesus was a harbor city. It was very diverse. It was an urban area known for trade, known for banking. It was um, about 250,000 people in what would be modern-day Turkey. There were five major cities in that area. It was part of Asia. Um, Asia Minor is what they would call it back then. And Ephesus was one of the big dogs. And so picture a very diverse city, um, a, a city that had people from all over uh, the known world visiting and, and occupying. And they were ultimately... Um, in love with this pagan god that they call um, Artemis, the goddess Artemis. Some um, w- would call her Diana, but this god was, in their minds, um, a typical pagan god and that god of fertility. So you want to get pregnant or not? You want to have a big family? You need to bow down and worship this god. But, but this god was known for um, being the god of hunting. Kind of weird right? But for them, it was a big deal. And ultimately, they thought that um, in in Greek mythology, that this god Artemis, if you look in Acts chapter 19, you'll see (laughs) some issues with this this, uh, god, because it made the economy go crazy. And there was a bunch of people who built steel idols of Artemis. And when God has Paul go in preaching the gospel and says, 
handmade images are no images of God at all. They all freak out and they all throw a riot against him because they're like, dude, you're taking away all of our business. But this God, um, Artemis, is supposed to be the um, child of Zeus and the brother to Apollos. You can read all about it um, somewhere else. But this is very interesting. Very interesting. Okay, now let's go to Paul. Back to verse 1. So he says, I'm Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So who in the world is Paul? Real, again, overview. Back in Acts chapter 8 and chapter 9, you're going to see a dude named Saul. He murdered Christians. He was a punk. He was a religious zealot. He, he was uh, a Pharisee. He was of noble birth. He had a lot going for him. And he killed Christians. He was the one saying, execute. Then he has this conversion where God comes and, and makes him blind as he's walking down the road. And then God gets other believers involved to come and to heal him. And he opens his eyes and he has an amazing transformation. And he goes from being Saul to Paul. And now God is using him instead of persecuting Christians to go spread the gospel and tell people all about Jesus. Isn't that funny how God works? Whatever you despise, um, you, you ever said, I'm, I'm, I would never move to that city, or I would never have that job, or I would never do this, and then you find in a matter of years you're moving to that city, taking that job, doing this, and you realize, oh, don't ever say that. God might, might have you do it. Well, that was Saul when he became Paul. Now, Paul, he, um, he had a lot written about him. If you look at Acts chapter 13 through 28, it's all about his three, some say four, missionary journeys, going and taking the gospel over all of um, the known world at that point. Some believed he walked, in many cases, up to 20 miles a day. He would have day after day after day where he'd be walking long distances. He preached the gospel. He's known for preaching the gospel. He wrote 13, some say Hebrews, which would make it 14, of the 27 New Testament books. And then you throw in a guy like Luke, who was, many believed Luke was um, a historian and a physician. He was Paul's doctor. And so Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. Um, and a lot of that info might have come from Paul. So Paul wasn't one of the original 12 disciples. He was kind of an outcast, right? And he um, had incredible influence. He wrote books like um, Philippians and First and Second Thessalonians and Colossians and Romans and First and Second Corinthians and First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus and Philemon and and he a whole bunch of those letters they all came from Paul so half of the New Testament um, is coming from him now this dude had his life completely transformed by Jesus he was um, beaten he was stoned he was left for dead he he was mocked he was cussed he was uh, snake bitten some of you say I just have bad luck I'm just snake bitten no like literally he was snake bitten and he was uh, left adrift at sea he had all kinds of heartache and yet even while he's in jail, he's writing this letter. Now, he has an affinity for the Ephesians because if you look in um, his missionary journeys, I know we're rifling off a whole bunch of info. In his missionary journeys, he spent the most time anywhere in Ephesus. He, he planted that church. He went, set up a training center um, in one of the halls there. He was sending people out. It was, it was a big, huge part of his ministry. So with that being said, 
Let's just imagine for a second. You live in a quarter million person city, which for then would be a lot. And you're uh, in a place that's demonic. It's diverse in religion. And they all worship this God. And there's this heaviness in the air um, because this God is not the God of the universe. And, and your pastor is in jail hundreds of miles away. And, and you know, he was your former pastor, but he has had great influence in you uh, on your life. And he sends this letter and you get this letter. If you were the Ephesians, what would you have wanted it to say? If you're Paul, love you guys. I, like, I love you so much. I love all the churches I help plant, but like, I really, really love you guys. You read in Acts when he left the elders in Ephesus, he was, he was like bawling, like it was a big deal for him. What would you write if you could just write one letter about your faith, about what you would want someone to know about Jesus? What would it say? How would it start? It's interesting. For him, he says, who, what, and why? He said, my name's Paul. That's who I am. I'm apostle. That's what I do. The apostle is someone who is a special messenger. Um, most scholars understand apostles to be people who physically walked with Jesus. Paul is an exception, but he had some special encounters with Jesus in that first century. If you have someone today come up to you and say, I'm an apostle, run. Of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So this is the how. So who, what, how? Who do people say you are? What names have you been called over the years? When you're alone with your thoughts at the end of the day and you think about the things you've done, both good and bad, what would you call yourself? A failure? Hopeless? Amazing? A great decision maker? A horrible decision maker? Someone who needs lots of second chances? What have people said about you? What have you done to earn that reputation? What does your track record look like? We've all made mistakes, right? Some of us make more mistakes than others. You know, when you don't know who you are, you won't know what to do. But when you don't know who you are, you often do things to create your identity. And so you look at yourself and you say, oh, I want to know who I am. And the world will tell you, well, it's just what you've done. So you're divorced. You are... Um, a failure, you are a carpenter, you are, and whatever you do is who you are. But what have you done? What, well, what's your reputation? What's your identity? And then where is that coming from? Is that uh, what you believe about yourself? Is that from God? What you believe about yourself and your identity, is that from God or is that, is that from your parents? Did they kind of just instill who they wanted you to be or maybe it was good, maybe it was bad. But they, they just told you, this is who you are. 
Is it your friends? Is it your coworkers, your enemies? Is it your bad experiences, your mistakes? Is it your own conscience? Is it the enemy? Where does it come from? You know, to accept your new identity in Christ, you have to be willing to leave the old one behind. I've said this um, before, probably here, but it's worth mentioning again. Um, I remember after being convicted as a, a felon when I was 19, I remember wanting to start a new life in Hutchinson and I decided to be a firefighter or I was going to go to school to be a firefighter because I thought this is a noble thing to do. I want to recreate myself, right? It's hard once you get a bad rap. Um, as they say, once you're in the system, you're always in the system and it just wasn't, wasn't healthy for me to stay in Riley County anymore. And so I left and I remember my first day down there, I took my dad with me and my dad and I had a decent relationship, but not not like an amazing relationship. And he was still probably pretty ticked off that I was a fool. So that's a disappointment when you're a parent and you're like, gosh, you're just kind of an idiot, my son. I love you, but I can't get over it. And, and so I imagine he had some struggles. Well, we went down there and we found a place for me to stay. And I went uh, to talk to the, the secretary of the landlord. We were at the rental office and I needed my dad to co-sign because, again, I'm just, I'm just a punk kid trying to make my way in the world. And and so as she's given me the paperwork to fill out, and we're just kind of minding our own business, my dad kind of pushed me aside and looked in the, the um, office that she was sitting in and said, hey, now, what about felons? Because you know he's a felon, right? Man, I was ticked. We went to lunch. It was not a pleasant lunch. I said, why do you got to tell everybody what I've done, if she didn't ask, leave it alone. I don't need my reputation to precede me in everything. Well, you are a felon. and man, you drove it home. I didn't need reminded. Years later, I remember getting, um, getting it all expunged off my record. And I remember standing before the judge and, and I asked him, it was pretty informal. I said, now what does this mean? And he said, you can legally claim that this never happened. And I just couldn't accept that. Because what I had done that was bad in life had so defined me that to say I'm not a felon was to lie to myself. But honestly, there was probably just a little part of me that was scared to give up that identity. Sometimes even a poor identity is still comfortable because we know who we are. And it's better than not knowing at all. And so we don't like our identity, but we sink into it and say, I guess I'll just stay here. And the devil says, yeah, you stay there. When Christ forgives you, it means you're forgiven. That as far as the east is from the west, your sins are gone. And and everything changes spiritually for you. And you have to be willing to leave that old life behind to walk in the new life. And the enemy is going to say, don't leave that life behind. And God's going to say, you have to leave that life behind. Paul could have said, this is Saul, a murderer of Christians. 
by the will of the devil and my own flesh. There's a million identities you all can walk in. You have to choose. Am I going to walk in the one that God defines me as? Second part of the first verse. To the saints who are in Ephesus. So now this is the recipient. And are faithful in Christ Jesus. So we know who Paul is now. Who are we? And he says two things that were saints that were faithful. So we're faithful saints. Now, to be a saint, and this, we're going we're to spend some time on this part. To be a saint means to be a holy one, to be set apart. So you're holy. How many of you go around calling yourself a saint? You ever introduced yourself that way? Well, this is Saint Joey. This is Saint Trail. Well, I mean, that would go over awkward with pretty much everyone, wouldn't it? Because no one feels like they're perfect. And if you claim to be perfect, we just say you're self-righteous. And, and yet, if you look at Paul's letters, if you look at his letters to the Romans, he says, to the saints. To, to the uh, Corinthians, to the saints. To those in Colossae, to the saints. He says over and over, to the saints. This is how God defines you if you are in Christ. You are holy. You're made perfect. Not that your behavior is always perfect, but he says, this is your identity. People ask, so are Christians sinners or are we saints? Because the Bible kind of makes it clear that we're both. I mean, think about it. Over 300 times in the Bible, the Bible says that we are sinners or that we sin. Roughly 600 times throughout the Bible, it speaks of the wrath and judgment that we have coming to those who are not in Christ. So it kind of makes it pretty clear. We got flaws and we got issues and we're not so holy. But yet this world... We'll give you drugs, we'll give you self-help books, we'll give you therapy, we'll give you whatever you need to make you think that you're a good person and that you're not so bad. And God's saying, that's part of the problem. You need to know that you're bad. You need to know that there is no hope, that you are spiritually dead apart from Christ. The longer you cling to the hope that maybe you in and of yourself have some internal value that you can muster up enough, man, if I work harder, if I just do enough, God will love me, God will accept me, the further you are going to stay away from God's grace and his mercy. Because your work and his work will collide. They're at odds. And everything in you says, I just got to be a little better. And it doesn't work that way. You'd never be a saint on your own. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says that um, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther, the old uh, Protestant reformer, said this is what we call the great exchange. That when you come to the cross, you are telling God, I am giving you my sin. My identity as as a sinner, the consequence for my sin, I'm giving you all of it. My past, my present, my future. And, And God says, I'm exchanging that righteousness that God has, that Jesus has, the perfection, the holiness. I'm exchanging your sin for his righteousness. So you get to claim my record, my track record is clean. It's been expunged. I, I, can legal, I can say that I'm not a sinner in the legal sense. That I'm a saint because God makes me a saint. How many of you guys come from the Catholic Church? A few of you? 
A lot of people have a Catholic background, certainly in the Midwest. If you want to be a saint in the Catholic background, they got a 10-step process. Now, let me just rifle through um, what, what the general process is um, if you want to be a saint. Uh, because when many of us think of saints, we think of the Catholic Church. Number one, you've got to be Catholic. So that stinks for the rest of you guys. <laughs> Number two, you've got to die. So that really stinks for the rest of you guys. You've got to be dead. Number three, you've got to leave a local devotion. So there's got to be, after your death as a Catholic, there's got to be people who are like, yeah, man, let's talk about him or her. They've got a legacy, and they've got to, they to create some devotion to you. Number four, your life's got to be investigated. They've got to open a case. Is this person a really good person? Now that they're, they're dead, let's talk about that. Number five, that case will go to the bishop. So on the local level, they will say, okay, did they do enough? Let me investigate their life. What did they look like? Were they a good Catholic? Then after that, if it passes through there, then they start their prayers for post-mortem miracle. So you've got to have two miracles um, to be a saint in the Catholic Church. So they'll start their prayers for the first miracle. If that miracle comes through where they believe that dead person had some miraculous thing um, in their name happen while they were dead. I'm not saying this is logical. Just, I'm just saying this is how it goes. And, and so then number seven, if that miracle comes through, then it goes to the Vatican. So the case goes from the bishops on the local level to the Vatican. And now the guys with the big hats are going to be saying, you are something special. Let's just keep following this. And so then after that, um, number eight, they'll declare you blessed. And number nine, they will uh, pray for the second miracle to happen. And if that second miracle happens and the Vatican affirms that there has been a miracle um, one and miracle two, then uh, the last step, number 10, is to vote on sainthood. If you get that, then you're venerated. Then they can name churches, schools, anything they want after you, and you become saint, such and such. Sounds like a process, doesn't it? Let me give you the biblical process for sainthood. One step, place your faith in Jesus. Place your faith in Jesus. It's his righteousness. It's his holiness. Rarely do you and I have to show, oh, I love this. I'm going to love this more than you're going to love this. Rarely do you and I have to show tangibly that we believe and trust in the righteousness of Jesus that we can claim that righteousness. Can you, like if, I'm, we're not going to do it, but could you verbally right now say and agree with God, I am a saint? Why not? Assuming most of you could. Why not? Why couldn't you agree? He said, well, I'm not, I don't feel like it. Well, he didn't, Paul didn't say, to those who feel like saints, well, I just don't think I'm worthy enough. I'm not good enough. He didn't say, say you've got to be good enough. This is all about us in Christ. Well, I just don't think I could live up to that. It's all about Jesus and his perfection and his righteousness and it all being attributed to your account. Let me ask you, some of us, we know that we're sinners. We know that we're sinners so much that, that we are uh, having a hard time moving on from the past. Does it honor God for you to focus on your failures or focus on his perfection? You have to understand you're a sinner in need of grace. 
But I think we have a whole church full of people. I'm not talking cross point. I'm talking the whole church who, who recognizes more that we're sinners than we're saints. And you hear people all the time. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. You call yourself something long enough, you'll start living up to that reputation. And it's important for us to, to pull back and say, if we're, if we're living, there is so much more to being a Christian. The difference can't be for a non-believer and a Christian for, for us to start the same sentence and say, we're both wicked, nasty, horrible, sinful people deserving God's wrath, but I'm forgiven and you are not. Like, that's great, that's amazing, but there's so much more. There's, there's no, I have a new creation. I, I'm a new creation, I've got a new heart, I've got a heart that desires God. I know my behavior's not perfect, but your behavior might explain your activity. It doesn't define your identity. And, and so, can Christians sin? Yeah, the Bible says we will sin, but we'll be remorseful, we'll, we'll desire repentance, we'll walk in repentance. There will be life change, transformation, not just forgiveness, but we will be new creatures, and, and those who aren't in Christ are completely different. And some of us come to church week in and week out, and we say, well, I know, I'm just a wicked, horrible person, and I, I can't get over all my past failures, um, but at least I'm forgiven. Guys, like, don't reduce the gospel down to that. There's so much more power. So much more than that. If you sit back and you say, well, I am going to, um, I'm going to say that I just have a hard time forgiving myself. I understand that. I do. But guess what? If you're sitting here with the word of God telling you, I forgive you for your sins, You say, that's what God says. But then you say, I can't forgive myself. Ultimately, what you're saying is there's a God above God and that has the last name of me. I'm glad Jesus can forgive me, but I can't forgive me, so I'm God above God. God's saying, no, either I'm God or I'm not, right? If I forgive you, you just get to forgive yourself. And I know that's hard, but you're trusting in his perfection, not your own failures. He says, we're faithful. Faithful not being that, the the Greek word here is interesting because for faithful, it it means not dependable as much as full of faith. So if you read it that way, you understand, and we are full of faith in Christ Jesus. That's who you are as a Christian. So what does it mean to be full of faith in Christ Jesus? Well, number one, you got to be full of faith in what, in who he is. If you look at the claims of Christ through the Bible, he was either a lunatic or the Messiah. Can't be both. And he can't really be in between because his claims were outrageous. He says, I and the Father, we are one. If you've seen me, you've seen him. He claims to be God. That's why they killed him because they said, blasphemy. He's claiming to be God. And your faith is that he is God. Number two, faith in what he has done. Do you believe fully? Can you truly believe that he has erased your sin? The gospel is beautiful because it takes away the consequences of past sin, the power of current sin, and ultimately the presence of future sin because we'll be with God and there will be no sin. You can have victory over sin in life now and you can have victory over the consequences of your sin. Do you believe that in Christ? And last but not least... Do you believe who you are in Christ? So this whole series, that we're going to walk through this. And we're going to dig into some really good stuff.
And I'm not going to present it to you as an option. I'm just going to say, in Christ, this is who you are. And you may not feel like it or feel worthy, but he's saying, I'm telling you this is who you are. You get to believe it. And if you say, well, I'm not that, then ultimately, that's not humility. That's calling God a liar. If you're going to believe who he is and who he said he is and what he has done, you have to then ultimately believe that you are who he says you are. Some of us will come to church and say, I do believe in Jesus. I do believe who he is and what he's done, but I can't believe in who he says I am. And God's saying it doesn't work that way. Sometimes the best indicator of knowing do you really believe in who he is and what he's done is if you can believe in who he says you are. Because then you've got to put the rubber to the road. Last but not least, we just got a couple minutes here. We'll get you guys out of here. Verse 2 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Several key words here. Third thing we see is who is God? So we know who is Paul. We know who we are, or we start the process through this book of learning that. And then last but not least, who is God? And he's a giver of grace and peace. So it says grace. If you're not in Christ, you are very clearly um, on the path to wrath. There is wrath being stored up, and it will be poured out on all who are not in Christ. That's a reality. But if you're in Christ, you get grace. You get grace. See, the reputation he gives you isn't one that you deserve. It's kind of like the flip side of this experience most of us have had. You ever, as a kid, um, been called something that you didn't think that you really deserved to be called? Maybe as a teenager, maybe today. (laughs) Someone said, you're a liar. You're a thief. You're a horrible person. And you went home and you told your mom and dad and you said, this is what they called me. What did your mom and dad do? They redefined who you were. They said, no, this is who you are. And he said, okay, 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 okay. And this is who we raised you to be. And this is who you are. God the Father, he does that through his word. That's why you got to keep coming back to his word because the only way that we're going to be saints and the only way that we're found faithful in Christ and full of faith in Christ is because of the grace of God. You can't muster that up your own. You got to trust him. And that's a beautiful thing. It says peace. Again, if you're not in Christ, there should be no peace. Some of us... We want to be disciple makers, and so we go to people who don't know Christ, and we try to help them to have the blessings of Christ without Christ himself. We say, oh, you need peace in your life. You got relationship issues? Well, here, let me tell you some of the top five things you can do to help your relationships, and then you can have some peace here. Like, no, there shouldn't be any peace where there's not peace. Make me, as a preacher, never preach peace where there is no peace. If it doesn't belong there, the peace only comes in Jesus. Scratch the top five things you can do. Bow a knee to Jesus. That's where the peace comes from. But there's peace in Christ because, again, as we walk through this whole thing, your identity is based on what he has done for you. I've said that so many times tonight. I'm going to say it a whole bunch of times as we move on. You can't screw this up. You can't screw it up because it's not about what you've done. I want, to, um, I want to wrap up with this last little bit. It says that this comes from 
our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that might sound simple. There's so much power in it. You see, um, some of us, when it comes to walking in Christ and, and living out our identity in Christ, um, we, we know having a relationship with God is obviously uh, what it's all about. But some of us go our entire lives living in condemnation and hearing lies from the enemy as we pray and as we go throughout our day, thinking that's what a walk with God looks like when it's not a walk with God at all. It's a walk with the enemy. And we don't ever truly hear God's voice. We don't know, is this God leading me? Is this the enemy condemning me? And you need to know that our God is both Lord. He's the one telling us what to do, but he's a father. And he takes us by the hand and he walks with us and he loves us. And so I want to I rifle off to you the difference between you experiencing biblical conviction and, and, and you experiencing condemnation. Because condemnation is from the devil, and the conviction is from God. And saints experience conviction, and, and those who aren't in Christ are going to experience condemnation. But in Romans 8, chapter 1, it says, if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. And yet so many believers tend to experience that, and they don't, they don't know. So let me, let me rifle off some differences for you as, as we move to the end of this tonight. Conviction. Conviction prompts repentance, but condemnation prompts guilt. Conviction leads to life, condemnation to despair. Conviction leads to joy, condemnation ends in sorrow. Conviction says, I want to change. Condemnation says, you can't and you won't. Conviction points to new life in Christ. Condemnation points to your old life as a sinner. Conviction addresses specific sin. Condemnation vaguely paints a picture of what you should be guilty about. Conviction seeks power in Christ. Condemnation seeks power in yourself. Conviction is a blessing. Condemnation is a burden. Listen, if your walk with Christ right now is filled with a vague sense of failure and worthlessness that leads to hopelessness and anxiety and depression, and that you feel that God is far away and that you're a failure, you need to know that's from the enemy. And some of us, we know that we've just been bad in life and we're not very good Christians. And so we feel like this is the delusion that it's holy of us to just keep going along, beat down, saying, well, I know I'm just not very good, and I'm more of a sinner than I am a saint in my behavior. And we just keep going, and we think, well, God, where are you? And this is what most of us, this is what a lot of people experience as Christians. And you need to know, that's not the Father here. The Father is the one wrapping you up, saying, when you're in me, the pressure's off. I love you. I'm going to give you a clear mind. I'm going to put my spirit in you, fill you with my spirit. You're going to have peace. You're going to have joy. And I'm going to walk you through your brokenness. I'm going to heal you. And you just need to stay in me. Just abide in me. And even when you fail at that, grace is going to cover you. And we're going to walk through this together because he's a father. He's not a liar or an accuser or a deceiver like the Bible says the devil is. God did all the work. Jesus is faithful when we're not. He's perfect even though we're not. He's obedient when we're not. And so as you leave here tonight, 
I, I, I just want you to ask yourself throughout the week, are you going to believe what God says about you in his word over your insecurities, over your past failures, over your current circumstances, over who your friends say you are, who your own conscience condemns you as, who the enemy says you are? You're going to let that tear down the blessing of walking in our God-given identity because here's the bottom line. When it comes to your identity in Christ and walking in it, you get the joy, but he gets the glory. That's good news. Don't leave it on the table. We've got a beautifully wonderful but hard journey ahead of us in Ephesians as we dig into God's word. Um, I look forward to it. Let's pray.